Good morning. Welcome to Noah Kills. Please stand and join us in singing. was thinking about worship this morning, uh, I gained a new um, uh, appreciation of the psalmist when he declared, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. So in the name of our risen Lord and Savior, welcome to his worship service. To you who are here, who, wow, this is amazing social distancing. Um, And to those of you who are not here, What I can tell you is that we miss you. We miss your smiles. We miss your children's laughter. Oh, shoot, we miss your children's hollering and yelling. We just, uh, we miss you. So it's good to be in the house of the Lord with you all today. Welcome to worship. Just a few items uh, to catch up on to um, the Sazos family. We welcome Felix into the world, into this family, into our family into the family of God. Welcome, Felix. Uh, There is more announcements. They're much of the same, but um, in line with the Sazos, Jenny Nelson coordinates meals. You might have seen an email from her. Uh, They are a true delight and blessing to the givers and the receivers of those meals. So talk to Jenny or email her and sign up for some meals for the Sazos family. 
Uh, Gail Spence is uh, leading ESL for Tree of Life, and I think that will be starting up in September. So if that is something that uh, is on your heart, talk to Gail. She'd love to talk to you. She's right there. Yeah, thank you, Gail. Sorry. <laughs> uh, and Children's Church, uh, ages three through six, will be happening today. Uh, it will be happening around the corner, I think, in Music Room 1. Uh, that, they'll be dismissed later on. And, of course, as always, we have uh, things to follow, rules to follow, safeguards to, and precautions as we meet together. We just ask you to follow them. And um, if we forget to announce it, uh, the offering boxes are as you leave. Um, that is part of our worship, uh, is our offering. So, so welcome. You know, um, part of welcoming, at least part of this job, is understanding, uh, understanding your audience. Uh, and I understand that we are a people which is testified by our distancing and and lack of numbers, we're a people that uh, live in a fallen world. And that fallen world is, is more and more fallen. And there are viruses and there's social unrest and, and that breeds fear and resentment and anger and division. And that's out there and, and we are people that in our own homes, we have fear and anger and resentment and, and division. We have hurts, we have deaths. Uh, we mourn with Sue Carnier and the loss of her dad. We mourn with Paula and the loss of her grandma. We mourn with Katie and her grandma's uh, acquiring COVID uh, and of course, we mourn with the Thompsons. Uh, we have marriages that hurt. We have children that hurt. And they walk away from the faith. And here's the thing. We don't leave that at the door. We bring that here. That's us. That's part of the welcome. That's part of who we are. That's part of us coming to the Lord, and I find, and if you'll just grant me a, one more minute, I find Paul's, um, Paul's advice, Paul's perspective on this welcome to be something that we should hear one more time. So listen with me from the Apostle Paul. He says, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. 
And may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you might abound in hope. That is a welcome. Thank you, Lord Jesus. So together, let's, um, let's go to our calling ourselves together for worship. It's found in the Lord's Word, Psalm 145. It should be up on the screen behind me. Of course, I will be the leader. You will be the people. This is the Lord's Word. Together, uh, leader, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame, your fame of the fame of your abundant goodness, and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power. To make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. Come, let us pray. Good morning, Father. In your kindness, in your mercy, and in your love, you have drawn us this morning into worshiping you. So together with the saints seated here, with the saints seated in their homes, with the saints around the world, we come in joy to worship you and to bring you glory. So today, Lord, direct our hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Jesus and anoint our souls with Christ so that we might be a people who proclaim with all the saints that thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Please stand and continue to join us in worship. Arise, my soul, arise. Take off your guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice on my behalf appears. And for the throne, my surety stands. For the throne, my surety stands. My name is written on his hand. 
Deep, deep, rabbi. 
gracious and astounding. God's love so confounding appears to us in a cleansing flow of blood. Son left throne in glory, or the Father's wrath and fury in our shed. For the sins of all we bless. Stand in awe and worship. Raise your voice and worship. Come adore the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We hold the land. Heaven is there, but God raised him from the grave. For his almighty sin, Lord of every man, stand in awe and worship, raise your voice and worship, come adore the King of kings and Lord of lords, stand in awe and worship. Voice and worship come and go, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Amen. Please be seated. So we have the privilege of prayer together. We've been doing it a little differently. So follow along and pray together. And just a word, I think uh, that quote uh, from Scripture comes from Jeremiah. And we talked about earlier fear and resentment and anger and division. Jeremiah knew that to a far deeper and greater extent than I think we'll ever know. And yet, listen to the words that God gave him. He said, am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? Amen. We're going to pray together responsively. You will do the bold words. Come, let us pray. Sovereign God, we pray on behalf of your church throughout the world 
for this congregation and for our sister PCA churches in the Potomac Presbytery. Fill their pastors with your Holy Spirit and bless their worship services in person and online of Pilgrim PCA in Martinsburg and their pastor, Reverend Kirk Blankenship, Grace Christian PCA in Hancock, Maryland, and their pastor, Reverend Ed Geyer, and Grace Reformed PCA in Hagerstown, Maryland, and their pastor, Reverend Gary Knable. Lord, hear our prayer. Lord, you truly do fill heaven and earth, and indeed the reach of your presence far exceeds even that, since the heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain you. For all this, we praise and worship you today. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens, and let your glory be over all the earth. Lord, hear our prayer. Lord, you are everywhere. We can always know that you are here. Our longing is to live in the full awareness of this reality and to know the blessing that comes from it. Blessed are those who have learned to acclaim you, who walk in the light of your presence, O Lord. Lord, hear our prayer. All present God, because of the salvation you have granted us through the death of your son, Jesus Christ, we look forward to the indescribable experience of being with you for all eternity. You will fill us with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Lord, hear our prayer. O God, of all our spoken and unspoken requests, we present to you in the matchless name of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior. Amen. And so, at this time, we take time personally for our confession of sin and our confession of our assurance and position in Jesus. So take a moment to do that. Jesus. Amen. So let's all read together the confession that's in front of you, please. Almighty and most merciful Father, we are thankful that your mercy is higher than the heavens, wider than our wanderings, deeper than all our sin. Forgive our frivolous attitude toward life, our callousness toward suffering, our envy of those who have more than we have, our obsession with creating a life of constant pleasure, our indifference to the treasures of heaven, our neglect of your wise and gracious law, help us to change our way of life so that we may desire what is good, love what you love, and do what you command. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. And from our Lord, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him.
As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Amen. I would remind everybody that we're not passing a uh, offering plate around just due to the COVID, but if you're moved to, to give an offering today, we do have offering boxes in the backs for you to do that. And if you're watching uh, through the streaming or on video later, uh, you can certainly feel free to mail a check into the church offices or, or give in that way if you'd like. Um, our Lord Jesus was both loved and betrayed, uh, and we're going to be singing about that for our doxology today. So if we'd rise as we sing a little bit of Man of Sorrows. Dismiss our younger children to Children's Church. Be in Music Room 1 today. The rest of you will want to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. Getting close to the end. One more month in Mark. Uh, let me say that uh, we've started today, sort of the last minute thing, but there is a new daily devotional. Uh, it's posted on Realm. And uh, so for those of you that are uh, on Realm, we'll have that posted every day. It's written by the RTS faculty. And so it'll be for three weeks for the summer. And um, so that's uh, something else for you to look forward to and utilize. And hopefully that will be beneficial uh, for you. Mark chapter 14, we're going to read the first 11 uh, verses. Um, it's a beautiful story, a little bit different uh, from some of the stories we have read. But uh, if you would turn there with me and follow along, Mark 14, 1 through 11. As always, listen carefully as this is the word of God. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, 
and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? This ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word. And as we say every week, we need it. Thank you for giving us the scriptures. Thank you for making us your people. Once again, you have brought us to this amazing gospel to learn more about your son, Jesus. We ask you this morning to give us the grace to understand this passage of beauty and betrayal. It's counterintuitive, countercultural, and to some degree counter-common sense. So help us to consider what these inspired verses have to teach us about being devoted to Christ. Help us to hear your word, understand it, believe it, and obey it. And so we pray, speak through the Gospel of Mark this morning, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. For in his name we pray, amen and amen. In the 1930s, there was a group of artists in Europe that met regularly as the shadow of war crept across the continent. The Nazis were on the march at that time, invading one country after another. And it was a dark time, and these artists would gather, and they would ask each other this question, how can one think about planting roses when the world is burning? They ask, how can we pursue art? How can we paint? How can we compose music? How can we spend our time creating beautiful things when there's so much ugliness and despair around us? How can we plant roses when the world is burning? How would you have answered them? Hold on to that thought. I have no doubt that many of you care deeply about the injustices occurring in our world. You want to see the oppressed set free, the marginalized valued, and orphans and widows cared for. Hang on a second. Very sorry. Good? All right. Technology. It's awesome. And you want to see the gospel preached to the lost. Those are very real, very practical problems that must be engaged. And when we see injustices around us, we may think that cultivating art and beauty is a waste, a luxury that distracts the church from these other more urgent issues. But if we want our world to value orphans, the poor, the trafficked, the hungry, 
If we want to awaken the church to the value of every human life, no matter how small, how old, how broken, or how different, then we have to confront the utilitarian ethic that has enslaved us. And we do that by learning how to value the unuseful. The unuseful. We do that by cultivating beauty. Beauty is a prerequisite for justice. If people do not learn to value the impractical, they'll never extend equal rights to the unuseful. And one of the most powerful ways the church can stand against the dehumanizing values of our culture is honestly through foolish, impractical, and wasteful extravagance of art. Music, worship, architecture, literature, poetry. Notice I included worship in there. There's so much of worship that is based in art and in beauty. We confront injustice by breaking ourselves open and pouring the beauty of our lives out on the floor. And the world will probably not understand what we're doing, but our Lord will declare, leave them alone, for they are doing a beautiful thing for me. To some degree, that's what we see here in Mark 14, in the first 11 verses. We see something altogether different. A sacrificial love by a woman that Mark allows to remain anonymous. And we see two lives that couldn't stand in greater contrast when it comes to devotion to our Lord. We have a woman who gave her best and a man who gave his worst. And of the woman, Jesus says in verse 9, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Of the man, our Lord says, which we'll see in a few weeks, verse 21, it would have been better for that man if he had not been born. What a dramatic contrast. Well, see the main contrast in this passage. We have to start by seeing a series of smaller, though not insignificant, contrasts. And the first contrast we see is that love is public. Love is public. If you have your sermon outline, remind you again, you can print those out in advance, bring it with you, follow along at home, follow along online. Um, but it's love is public, verses 1 through 3. Let me read those again. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. Now the backdrop for this story is the Jewish feast of Passover and unleavened bread happening in Jerusalem. It's a time of thanksgiving for the exodus, God's miraculous deliverance from Egypt. If you want to know more, you can go back. We did a sermon series on Exodus a few years ago. You can find that on our website. And so it's kind of like the Jewish Independence Day. And it includes the slaughter of the Passover lamb, uh, who back during the Exodus, whose blood on the doorpost some 1,400 years earlier caused the death angel to pass over each home, sparing the life of the firstborn in that family. So that's the background. This feast is going on. And now the 
Priests and scribes gather in secret, and they're seeking to arrest Jesus and kill him. And Mark says they hope to arrest him by stealth, but not during the feast. See, Jesus is too popular with the people, so they want to wait till the feast is over and all the crowds have gone home. However, things always proceed on God's timetable, and Christ, the Passover lamb, would be sacrificed right on time. So we have that setting there, and then the scene shifts to Bethany, to the house of Simon the leper, whom Jesus had previously healed of leprosy, but apparently that's still how he's known. Church history says this may have been the father of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. We don't know that for sure. That, just, that doesn't come from the scriptures. That comes from church history. But apparently they're uh, present there in some way. The woman here is unnamed in both Matthew and Mark. But in the Gospel of John, we're told that it's Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. So we pick up the story again. And verse uh, 3, it says, Jesus was reclining at table. A woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard. The only thing we know about that is it's very costly. Nard is this sweet-smelling perfume from this rare plant apparently found only in India. And so Mary breaks the flask, making it no longer usable, and poured its contents out over Jesus, both on his head and his feet. And John says she wiped his feet with her hair. Every time we see Mary in all four Gospels, she is at the feet of Jesus. Every time. And in that culture, now a woman would not normally approach a man in this kind of public setting except to serve him food. And it seems that Mary doesn't care a whole lot about cultural convention. Jesus is her Lord and Savior. She loved him. She would do anything for him. She wanted everyone to know the great value she placed on him. So she goes public. No one could deny or doubt where her loyalty lay. And this is the first contrast. <coughs> and Jesus' opponents are seeking to arrest him by stealth, in secret. Mary openly serves him by anointing him in public. And so the chief priests and the scribes, they see her actions as so unuseful. So unuseful. So unuseful, so much so, they criticize her. And then we see that love is criticized, verses 4 and 5. Love is criticized. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. The denarii is one day's wage, so more than 300. We're essentially talking about a year's wage. So think about whatever you make in a year, and that's kind of the value of what Mary has done. And they scolded her. Now, the critics would have no part in praising what this woman has done. Some begin to talk among themselves, and they're indignant. John tells us that they're led by Judas, 
and in self-righteous pride, they question both her motives and her actions. And while she worships at the feet of Jesus, they express anger and displeasure. And look at the end of verse 5. And they scolded her. It's not just the religious leaders. It's the disciples too. They're thinking practically. They're thinking about usefulness. To them, the oil is a commodity to be utilized in exchange for a measurable outcome. And therefore, pouring it out even over the head of Jesus, it's just a waste. And so they not only demean the woman, they also demean Jesus. See, they're saying that he's not worth it to have this ointment. You know, we could have gone to Costco and got a $30 bottle of ointment. You can anoint him with that. We don't know exactly everything they said. But to honor Christ in this manner, they said, is a waste. They didn't believe he's worthy of such sacrificial love. Some are willing to be poor in their possessions in order to be rich in their devotion to Jesus, and others are not. And the others are usually the critics. The world, and many in the church, will never have a problem with a moderate, measured devotion to Christ. They will have no problem with their possessions in a pursuit of comfortable Christianity. But walk away from a real career and you'll be marked as foolish, living a wasted life. Walk away from mom and dad to serve the Lord among the poor and the hurting and you'll be deemed impractical. Walk away from friends to head out to the mission field among an unreached people group, even taking your small children with you, and you'll be scolded as reckless, imbalanced, and probably in need of some serious counseling. Do any of that, and you will be criticized here. But in heaven, you have a master who applauds your love for him. The Apostle Paul puts it in perspective in Galatians 1. He says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. When you see someone exercising sacrificial love, are you quick to criticize its wastefulness? Are you the one who immediately points out a better alternative? Maybe you're jealous that love wasn't shown to you. I'd like to think that none of that would apply to any of us. But I see the comments on Facebook. I've seen the online scolding that can happen. And sadly, I've done some of it. And I don't like to see you do what I don't like in myself. By way of application, that's the second contrast. Are we known for our sacrificial service, or are we known for how often we scold others? Are we commenting on their actions because they're just not practical? And we don't want to be associated with the unuseful. Perhaps but not Jesus. Look at how he reacts. His response is one where love is remembered. Where love is remembered, verses 6 through 9. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. 
She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. The book of Acts chapter 7 records the stoning of Stephen, who's the first Christian martyr. And in that uh, chapter, uh, near the end, we see that Jesus, or that Stephen sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he makes the mistake of telling all the scribes and Pharisees that he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and for that they stone him. And our Savior stands. Normally we see Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God. That's normally what the scriptures say. But here he's standing at the right hand of God because our Savior stands to receive his faithful, martyred servant into glory. And here in Mark 14, in effect, we see our Lord standing up for another faithful servant. Not a martyr that we know of, but a woman who has showered him with sacrificial love only to be scolded by those who should have known better. Look with me at verse 6. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. He tells him not to harass her. There's no need to give her a hard time. She's done something wonderful and singularly important to Jesus. Jesus doesn't see a woman wasting an expensive commodity. He doesn't view her actions through the lens of practicality. Instead, he sees the beauty of it. In these last chapters of Mark, as we see in the last chapters of all the Gospels, the women are the ones who usually demonstrate the most faith in the end of the Gospels in the Passion Week of Jesus. And here Jesus sees the beauty of what she's done. Now, some people will misread verse 7, saying that Jesus is insensitive to the poor. We should do good for the poor. Jesus believed that, and he taught that. The issue here is between the always and the not always. He says the poor are always there, but Jesus would not always be there. The opportunity to show him this kind of sacrificial love would soon be gone. Furthermore, Jesus is God. He's the Son of God. He's the second person of the Trinity. And the first of the great commands, Mark 12, and you shall love the Lord your God with your, all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and with all your strength, always trumps the second, Mark 12, 31, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus asserts his preeminence over all things, above all others. And we see that in Colossians 1, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. This might help. I mean, if we put the words of verse 7 in the mouth of any other person, they would sound scandalous or self-centered or narcissistic. But we put them in the mouth of the Son of God, who, according to 2 Corinthians 8, says, although he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich, and now they make sense. Care for the poor? Absolutely. But worship the Savior. And the Savior makes some striking observations about Mary. Look at verse 8. She has done what she could. She held nothing back. 
And then he says, she has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Her act of sacrificial love has prophetic and symbolic significance. Now, did she fully understand what was about to happen? Probably not. Did she have greater insight to our Lord's coming passion than the disciples did? I have no doubt about that. Look how Jesus handles this. The disciples have scolded her. And he could have turned on the disciples and just blasted them. Can't you see what's going on here? After spending all this time in ministry with me, after all the teaching, all the healings, all the miracles, the many parables, the repeated warnings of my coming crucifixion, you still don't understand what's going on? Are you really that dumb? Jesus doesn't say that. I might have said that, but Jesus doesn't say that. Instead, as the scriptures tell us over and over and over again, just one example, James 4, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. What a perfect picture of this verse. Mary is a perfect picture of that verse. She has humbled herself before the Lord and now he exalts her. He makes a promise that her sacrificial love will never be forgotten. Verse 9, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. The fact that I'm sharing this story now is just further validation of what Jesus promised. And of course, it's really a foreshadowing of what Jesus himself is doing. And will do. Philippians 2.8 says, In being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Most of us struggle with self-righteous pride. We want to be noticed. We want to be thanked. We want the opportunity to show people how humble we really are. And Jesus looks at us and says, Have you seen my servant Mary? That's the third contrast, pride versus humility. Most of us lack humility from time to time, some more than others. But it takes humility to be willing to do the unuseful thing. And that's something Judas just wasn't willing to do. And because of that, we see that love is betrayed. Verses 10 and 11, love is betrayed. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now, some people find Jesus useful because of what they can get from him. Others find Jesus beautiful because they get him. This woman found Jesus beautiful and gave all she had to him. In contrast, Jesus or Judas found Jesus useful and sought to get all he could from him. Judas is one of the twelve. He is so close to Jesus, and yet he really misses him. And when he no longer finds him useful, he betrays him. And amazingly, Judas takes the initiative, verse 10, going to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. Luke and John inform us that Satan moved him to betray the Lord. Still, he chose to do so. And verse 11 is simple and tragic all at once. The leaders of the Sanhedrin are glad to hear it, and they promise to give him money. 
Matthew tells us it's 30 pieces of silver, which fulfills a prophecy of Zechariah. That Jesus is esteemed so lightly. Mary values Jesus and anoints him with oil that cost a year's wages. Judas sells him out for 30 pieces of silver. That Jesus is esteemed so lightly is reflected not just in the betrayal, but in this low sum agreed upon by Judas and the chief priests. And so then he says that Judas sought an opportunity to betray him. And it would come much sooner than he expected. And with the results, he would find deathly disappointed, literally deathly disappointing. Now we've been pointing out contrasts all along. Could there be a more vivid contrast than the one between Mary and Judas? I put a little chart in the sermon outline and we can put it up here on the screen. Look at how different these two people are. Mary is a woman with no real standing. Judas is one of the apostles. She gives what she could. Judas takes what he gets, what he can get. She blessed Jesus. He betrayed Jesus. She loved Jesus. He used Jesus. Jesus says she did a beautiful thing. He does a terrible thing. She served him as his savior. Judas sold him like a slave. And she's going to be notable forever for her devotion. And Judas is notorious forever for his betrayal. How I want to be like Mary. But oh, how often Judas shows up in the mirror. Only the gospel of God's grace as it's found in Jesus Christ can heal my sin-sick soul. That's probably true for you too. How can we tell which side of this chart we're falling on? It may change from day to day. You can do a beautiful thing one day and a betrayal thing the next. And the answer to that question, how can we tell which side of this chart we're falling on, brings up this final contrast. You can take the chart up. I'll just leave it up there for now. Final contrast. Simply put, are we doing beautiful things for Jesus? I tend to be a fan of the practical. I have told people that I, my, I, my fault is I'm crassly pragmatic. That's my bent. I'm pretty sympathetic to the Marthas of this world. I like people who get stuff done, though they can be a pain in the neck sometime. Not any of you, of course, other people. And I can be pretty tough on those who don't get stuff done. And I hate it when I'm the one who's not getting stuff done. Remember, I don't like in you what I don't like in me. But all of that, in light of this text, begs the question, has our practicality gotten in the way of doing beautiful things, even unuseful things, for Jesus? And that's a hard question to answer. It's one that you'll actually have to think about and ponder. Has our practicality gotten in the way of doing beautiful things, even unuseful things, for Jesus? You know, when we started, I told you about a group of artists who gathered in the 30s as Europe descended into war. 
And uh, at the opening of their meetings, they would say to each other, how can we think about planting roses when the world is burning? And I asked you to think about how you would answer that question. You know how they answered that question? You know what they said? They said, how can we not plant roses when the world is burning? That was 90 years ago. 60 years later, just 30 years ago, another man would have understood them well. His name is Vidran Smolovich, and he was the lead cellist in the Sarajevo Opera. And on May 28, 1992, he put on his formal black tails and sat down in a fire-scorched chair in a bomb crater and started to play. See, the crater was in his neighborhood where the day before, 22 people were killed by mortar fire while waiting in a bread line outside a bakery. And the next day, he went to that spot. Now, during the siege of Sarajevo in the early 90s, more than 10,000 people were killed. The citizens lived in constant fear of shelling and snipers while struggling each day to find food and water. Smolovich lived near one of the few working bakeries where the people had gathered when the shell exploded. He rushed to the scene and was overcome with grief at the carnage. And for the next 22 days, one day for each victim of the bombing, he decided to challenge the ugliness of war with his only weapon, beauty. He's known as the cellist of Sarajevo, and we have a picture of him. And that's the real guy in the real place. After this, Smolovich continued to unleash the beauty of his music in graveyards, at funerals, in the rubble of buildings, and in the middle of sniper-infested streets. And although completely vulnerable, he was never shot. It was as if the beauty of his presence repelled the violence of war. His music created an oasis amid the horror. It offered hope to the people of Sarajevo and a vision of beauty to those who were destroying his city. A reporter once asked him if he was crazy for playing in a war zone. Smelovich replied, why do you not ask me if they are crazy for bombing Sarajevo? His story demonstrates that cultivating beauty not only reveals God's character to us, teaches us to value the impractical, but it also confronts the sinfulness of our world. In war, we see the ultimate expression of utilitarianism. War is supremely practical. It is the willingness to sacrifice literally everything to achieve a goal. And when the tanks of war roll, everything is crushed beneath their treads, leaving only ugliness behind. Art, however, is the antithesis of war. It's an act of creation rather than destruction, order over chaos, beauty instead of ugliness. By playing his cello in the center of war-torn Sarajevo, Smolovich was planting roses when the world is burning. He was confronting the sinfulness of man seen in the horrible practicality of war with the beauty of God seen in the extravagant impracticality of art. Art's more than a luxury and beauty is more than a decoration. When we create art and music, when we gather to worship with expressions of majesty and adoration as we're doing this morning, like Vidrin Smolovich, 
We are performing an act of defiance. We are creating an oasis of beauty amid the dehumanizing ugliness of our world. We are protesting by declaring our refusal to succumb to the brokenness of the world and instead looking forward to a future world where all things will radiate the beauty of our creator and where justice will roll down like a mighty river. However, when we act like that, we will be considered outsiders. People will look at us the way the chief priests and the scribes looked at Mary, as wasteful, as impractical, as unuseful. Mary's actions in Mark 14 are a microcosm of the Christian life. The Christian life is a grateful response to the God who has brought us outsiders into his kingdom and made us part of his family. We're orphans, he adopts us. We're lepers, he heals us. We're sinners, he cleanses us. We're rebels and he makes us his servants. We're prodigals and he welcomes us home. From the perspective of God Almighty, we're the ultimate outsiders. We're pretty impractical and we're somewhat unuseful. And his grace makes us beautiful. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close. A friend of mine, a PCA pastor in New Hampshire named Steve McGee, has written a book that has a prayer for every chapter of the Bible. And so I have borrowed uh, some of my closing prayers uh, for this summer from his book, including this one. You'll recognize the beginning and the end. All the stuff in the middle is from him. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have given us a king. And in this passage, once again, we see your son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our savior. Help us to repent of those things that get in the way of sacrificially loving Christ. Lord, the enemies of your son were eager to put him to death. We thank you that you have made us to love him. We want to be able to pour out our lives in devotion to him. Still, the Judas impulse of betrayal troubles your church in every age. And despite this rebellion, the Lord gave his body and blood for sinners like us. Forgive us when we look and act too much like the world and not enough like Mary. Remind us once again that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Help us to find that beautiful. For all of us that need God's mercy, let's rise and sing this final song. God, be merciful to me. Yeah.
good with sound things or video things that please let us know we could use you thanks receive the lord's blessing by this we know love that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers but if anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him how does god's love abide in him little children let us not love in word or talk but in deed and in truth. God bless you. Have a good week. You need to dismiss.